Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'll give you a second to turn there. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're continuing our series on the life of David. This morning we see uh, David's life continues uh, to not go great uh, because of his sin. So this is 2 Samuel 12. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder uh, <clears throat> how many of you have ever participated in an intervention. Um, intervention is the, is a meeting that's conducted between an addict and the people who uh, at least have some measure of investment in the addict's life. <clears throat> Oftentimes there's a licensed therapist or even an intervention interventionist professional that's there. There was even a TV show a couple of years ago that let you look inside how these interventions go. Well, needless to say, they can be pretty harrowing experiences. Emotions tend to run very high and the interactions are super intense. But the people who participate in them will tell you that they knew they needed to host an intervention because they had reached a certain threshold with the addict. And that, that limit there was their conviction that the addict was far too, too far along for some kind of conventional interact, interaction with them or encouragement to get the help on their own. The addict, of course, is helpless, true, but worse than that, they don't know that they're helpless. 
<clears throat> there was a site I was looking through as I was researching this topic that listed the signs that might uh, uh, contribute to knowing that someone needed an intervention. The first one it listed was like dodgy behavior patterns. Emphasis on the word dodgy there. In other words, it feels like they're hiding something. Secondly, they talk about enhanced emotions, fits of rage, unchecked aggression, isolation, withdrawal from normal life patterns is another classic sign. Engagement in behavior patterns that are obvious to everybody else around. In other words, what the addict is going through is obvious to everybody else who can see them. Okay, so put yourself in the role of Nathan the prophet for a moment. You have gained knowledge of some awfully scandalous behavior that more than a few people in the royal household know about. That knowledge involves the king of the land, someone who is in a position of great power and authority. You know that they have been working in secret to hide and cover up their crimes. Not only that, they've isolated themselves during wartime when they were supposed to be out fighting. So, you decide to have an intervention. And you have to do this. Um, because you see how serious it is. And immediately, though, you need to have some measure of admiration for Nathan the prophet, don't you? I mean, talk about your hard conversations. There, there was nothing that unusual for kings to kill the prophets who happened to bring bad news to the, uh, to the king. But he's determined that he's not going to let David get away with what he's done. And he's not going to be able to live in the midst of this un injustice that he's committed. In other words, David is absolutely stuck. Why? Because it's not just that he's done something shocking and, and, and monstrous. It's that he's sitting very self-satisfied in the midst of his crimes. In other words, David isn't being lied to. <laughs> David is actually lying to himself. I mean, what do you do when the deception doesn't come from outside of you, but from inside of you? It's actually not something, things not quite as dangerous. Uh, there's nothing quite as dangerous as self-deception. I, I love using this illustration I dug up a couple of years ago. Uh, that 20 years ago, the SAT started putting new questions inside the regular sort of testing. And there was one question that was listed that said, do you rate yourself below average at being able to get along with other people? Does that make sense? They surveyed some 830,000 uh, young people who took the SAT that year. How many students do you think marked, yes, I am below average at getting along with other people? Zero. Not one. Not one person <laughs> marked that. As a matter of fact, it's worse than that. 60% of them rated themselves in the top 25% of all humanity. <laughs> Psychologists call this a self-serving bias, right? And I, I use that illustration to point this out. David's problem is our problem. Self-deception is still something we wrestle with. But as we watch David getting exposed by Nathan, we see him accept the consequences and walk through a process of repentance. My hope this morning is that we can walk through our own ways of our own self-deception and into some life-changing repentance. That's what I'm hoping for. So three points this morning as we head in that direction. We need to look at the need for the intervention, the substance of the intervention, and then finally the response to the intervention. Let's start first of all with the need there. It's very, very high drama, honestly, even as you're reading it in English. And the king is as deep in his own sin as he can get. Last week we learned that David has overpowered a beautiful woman who almost certainly had no sense of our modern notion of consent. 
He's told multiple lies in order to stage a massive cover-up of his crime. He's engineered the certain murder of a loyal and trusted military leader, all the while who was pledging his allegiance to him and love for the kingdom, leading finally to what must have been a horribly bruised conscience from having ignored what Uriah was saying. But of course, here he sits, right? We don't get a lot of insight into what David's mindset actually was at this time, but I don't think it's actually too much to wonder if he began to sit inside of his guilt, that his guilt began to work its way through. You began to see a preparation for David to write lines like he did in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Hmm. Maybe David was learning for the first time about the power of guilt. But regardless, Nathan hatches this plan to get at the heart of David's problem. And he begins with an appeal to David's kingly authority. In other words, since David has committed some pretty gross injustices, let's see how he deals with injustice in his kingdom. So he makes up a story. There's a rich man who's got lots of sheep and a poor man who only has one sheep who loves very much. Rich man has some uninvited guests who show up, so it's time to prepare a feast of lamb. Well, rather than using one of his own sheep, he takes the one sheep from the poor neighbor as his own. It's a remarkably simple story, right? But think about the psychology there. By appealing to what justice would look like in another part of David's kingdom, will David be able to see the injustice in his own heart? You know, Nathan and anybody else who's in the royal court for this particular scene would get a very amazing answer to that question. In other words, I think you can see in David's response to Nathan's intervention the surest sign that there was a drastic need for an intervention. Look carefully at what David says in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Oof. Okay, there's two illustrations here that give us insight into David's heart. The first one is he flies off in a rage. That's interesting. Because heightened, even irrational anger is one of the surest signs of a conscience that's under attack. Anger is a truth teller in many, many areas of life. The addict, of course, gets angry because they know that there are contradictions inside of their own soul that they can't regard, resolve. That's what happens. We get angry when we feel trapped. But you don't get the full sense of that being trapped oftentimes until you see yourself react to anger in a completely unrelated area. This happened to me years ago, and I, I'm not going to get too uh, transparent about it, but I, in the midst of a phone conversation with someone, completely unloaded on someone that I consider a, a dear friend. Um, and as I began in the days after watching what I had done, and probably did somewhat irreparable damage to the friendship, Doing a postmortem on that anger, I began to realize, not as a way of excuse, it would be like, you know, Les, you had actually gotten to a point in your life where you were not healthy. I was going through a lot of problems at work. My job was changing. I was uncertain about my future. And I began to realize that my flying off the handle was much more about where I was personally than it was about the individual I was exploding at. Their offense was pretty minor when you looked at it. 
My sense, though, is that this is exactly where David is and where the writer is trying to get you to notice of it because it says that his anger was greatly kindled. That's what it was. It was a rage. It was, a, it was an explosion of anger, which brings me to the sort of second point there, and that is that this misguided explosion comes out in irrationality when he says this, the man who has done this deserves to die? What? <laughs> Okay, so David, you're going to issue the death penalty for this thing? Look, if you go back into the law and you look at places like Leviticus chapter 6, you're going to find that Moses instructed the Jewish people that the penalty for cheating someone was simply to pay back what you had stolen or cheated them out of and then add 20% on top of it for their trouble, right? David, was, if he was following the law, should have paid the lamb back and then a little bit more to compensate the poor man for his trouble, but David decides not only is this man going to die for what he did, but he's actually going to quadruple the law's requirements for paying the poor man's reparations. Wow. <clears throat> Look, what's the point? I think the point for us is simply this. Follow your anger. Follow that. Because what David's guilt had done was not lead him to be less strict with the law of Moses, but more strict. And isn't that interesting? I mean, you would think that someone who had broken so many laws recently, like that king, would advocate for the loosening of law's demands. You know, he would go easy on his subjects because after all, I mean, I'm no prize myself. Look at what I did. Yeah, but see, people only talk that way when they're being honest about themselves and admit to their own problems. No. The inertia of your soul, when you are stricken with guilt is to be more cruel to those that are around you, more unreasonable in your demands, more authoritarian and despotic. David is a cautionary tale for us because he's revealing more of his soul than probably even he knows. David's, David does not yet understand that the devil's original trick was not simply getting humans to ignore God's law, but it began by exaggerating the law. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? When the devil comes to Adam and Eve and it's kind of like, oh, did God say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Which, of course, was a lie. God said you can eat anything in the garden, just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But notice what the devil had done. The devil started to erode Adam and Eve's confidence in following God. Introduce one little idea that maybe he's being a bit unreasonable. And of course, since that time, humans have responded to their own guilt with more and more cruelty. <clears throat> so yes, there was a need for the intervention. Secondly, though, let's get into the substance of the intervention, because this is where it gets interesting. I'll be honest with you, seven, verses 7 through 14 are just kind of hard to read, partly because they're so dire, but also because they unveil the very sad consequences that David is going to have to live with because of what he did in his sin. First thing you see there is that God contrasts David's very gross taking in, as over and opposed to God's generous giving. I mean, come on, God gave and gave and gave to David. He even adds in verse 8 that if David would just have asked, he would have given him more. But by contrast, David strikes down Uriah and he steals his wife from him. God, the great giver, David, the great thief. It's a palpable injustice, right? 
So by the time you get to verse 10, then he lowers the boom. And it's as if God says, look, David, if it's the sword that you love, then it is the sword that you are going to have. And from here on out, violence is going to plague David's house. And that violence is going to be the simple outworking of David's life patterns that he has established. And I'm going to warn you that for the next few weeks, as we wrap up the life of David, it ain't pretty. It goes downhill quick in the face of what happened with Bathsheba. It's a very interesting Old Testament judgment pattern, though. If you watch very carefully, you'll find that it is God's pattern that when someone begins to march away from his law, judgment is to simply give them more and more of what they've chosen until it destroys them. For example, look at Psalm 35, verse 7 and 8. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know. Let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. You see the point? It's a Psalm of David, no less. What it's saying, though, is, is that God himself does not bring the destruction per se. What he does is he withdraws his restraining hand and allows the evil to do what evil will always do, which is to burn itself out, ultimately ending, the way it always will, in the destruction of the host. Every sin has that as its ultimate goal. And that, as it turns out, is what brings David to his knees. The thought that God would remove his protection from David, that was as bad as it could get. So he breaks. And in verse 13 he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now I want to make a comment about the peculiar statement in the last point. But for now, I want you to notice the relationship between sin and forgiveness on the one hand and the consequences of those, that sin on the other hand. Look, because the second half of verse 13, David says, look, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. It is an amazing act of mercy on God's part, and restraint for that matter. I mean, David, remember, David has pronounced the death penalty on himself. The man who did this deserves to die. But of course, in his explosion to Nathan, God tells him, no, 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 you're not going to succeed, David, in exaggerating my law. So David leaves the encounter with his sin, according to Nathan, put away. But he still has to struggle with the consequences of his action. The first of which, and the most poignant, is the death of the child. Don't read too much into that connector word there, because, in verse 14. Because you have done this, the child will die. In other contexts, that Hebrew word does not suggest what we might call causation, so there's not necessarily a connection being made officially between David's act and the death of the child. More likely the death of the child is intended to distinguish Israel's God from the other nation's God. You know, with the knowledge that he's not going to tolerate the actions of a sinning king. In other nations, the king was absolutely sovereign and was not subject to any law. That's the point. But the difference is, is that David still has to live with consequences. It's been 20 years now, believe it or not, but I found myself sitting in a courtroom 20 years ago on the square at the sentencing of a young man who had been driving drunk with a bunch of his fraternity brothers and struck and killed uh, Laura Trependall, a young lady who was involved uh, with uh, the campus ministry I was serving at that time, RUF. 
He'd been found guilty of the crime, of course, but you know what happened in the wake of that was there were lots of people who wrote letters to the judge speaking on his behalf, tokens of support for the driver, trying to get the judge to uh, be gracious in his sentencing. And I learned so much that day because, in essence, the judge stood up and said, look, <clears throat> I'm inclined to believe everything that this young man's supporters have said about him. And I stand in amazement that even the young lady's family and boyfriend have asked me to forgive their daughter and girlfriend's killer, which, by the way, they did in an amazing way. <clears throat> but I remember him saying something to the effect of like, but I have to deal with a different sphere he said, because Laura Treppendahl was not just a beloved daughter and girlfriend, she was also a citizen of Oxford. And the latter role that she played and took on in this, in this context means that regardless of a posture of forgiveness, which we may always offer to him, she is owed a debt to the people of this county by the defendant for which he has to pay. And suddenly I began to see that this relationship between sin and forgiveness and consequences for the things that we do is not quite as tidy as we might like it to be. But these events would play out in David, we now see, were not intended to be punishments per se. We're already assured that those punishments were accounted for by God's mercy. But there's still consequences. And there's a difference there. For our purposes, though, we have to learn to live with the fact that, yes, God forgives, and that forgiveness would have far-reaching and, and, and continued effects for the good in David's soul. And, not but, he would have to live with the consequences of what he had done throughout his life. I can imagine there probably were times in David's life where he might have wished that God would have issued the death penalty against him instead of having to watch his family torn apart. Because of his actions? The, the conflict between forgiveness and consequences is such, it leads me to my last point, which is David's response to the intervention. Focus again back on verse 13. Look at it. I have sinned against the Lord. Most of you know that when David was going through this particular intervention, <clears throat> he began to wax poetic, as it were, and he wrote Psalm 51 in response to this incident. That is the psalm of repentance in the Old Testament. And when you go back and look at that psalm and you get to verse 4, you get something extremely odd. Because in the midst of his confession, he says this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the first time you read that, if you know the background of the story, you're thinking to yourself, What? <laughs> What do you mean against God and God only you sinned? Uh, what about Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab? A number of years ago, I heard a preacher <clears throat> create a distinction that really brought a lot of this to life. And he said he was explaining the difference between repentance and remorse. <clears throat> Think about David's mental state. Bear with me for a second. Think about David's mental state as he is lusting over Bathsheba. He sees her. She was married to someone else, but he still wants her. So he wields his power and he takes her. Now maybe in the sort of moments after he had experienced that time with her, maybe he had a rush of freedom. Maybe he came a, an early 21st century guy and thought, ah, at last I have achieved authenticity. I'm being my truest self, one who loves this person. The heart wants what the heart wants. 
Maybe he said that. But David knows the law too. He knows that he has the seventh commandment over here saying, you shall not commit adultery. Although he also knows the eighth, the tenth, the sixth. He knows all of them. But there's Bathsheba. And don't you see that before David forces himself on Bathsheba, he has to reject that God's law is good for him. I mean, if I follow God right now, I'm going to miss out on fulfillment. I'm going to languish. I'm going to sit here frustrated for me. His law in this moment is just not good for me. And as a matter of fact, I'm not sure he's good. This is the kicker, of course. And it's the reason why David says, against you and you only have I sinned. David's repentance comes because he comes to understand that when you sin, it's not just that you are breaking a rule. When we sin, we are actually breaking someone's heart, God's heart. Why? Because it's a statement that he does not have my best interest at heart. Ultimately, all sin is eventually cast as being character assassination. His will for my life is one thing, my will for my life is another, and I'm going to go with what I think is better for me. I heard Tim Keller tell a story about a couple that was in his church in a previous uh, pastor before he got to New York where the father of the family had long since abandoned the, the family. It was a mother and a child, and he was gone when the child was quite small. And of course, as we now know, single mothers uh, struggle as much as they can to raise their children as best as they can. And part of that raising for her son was uh, establishing some parameters, rules, guidelines, boundaries, as you were, that he was supposed to follow. But what happened was, is as the story went on, the young boy eventually graduates and goes to college. And inexplicably, the father shows back up in the boy's life. And he comes alongside him in order to, who knows what his motives were, but he comes alongside his long-lost son and is like, you know why your life stinks, don't you? It's because of your mother. She has all these rules for you. You don't really know what it's like to live in any real freedom. She's trying to keep you down. And of course, after that, the boy begins to act out. But Keller says that as he began to counsel this woman, he began to realize that her hurt was not because her son was partying or messing around with girls or whatever. Her hurt came because she realized that it was a rejection of her. She felt hurt because it was, she knew that her rules were loving, were expressions of her love. Keller says the story didn't end up happy. The boy ended up having a lifetime of, of broken relationships and emptiness he listened to his father's advice. But for us, I just want you to see the contrast. Repentance is going to God and saying, I didn't break a rule. I broke your heart. But so oftentimes what we do is we mistake repentance for remorse. That's different. What is remorse? Remorse is nothing more than aggravated self-pity. Aggravated self-pity. It's not the sin that someone feels badly for. What we feel badly for is the consequences of sin. We just want our way out of the trouble that I've made for myself. This is what people are saying when they say things like, well, you know, I know that God forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. What is that really saying? All you're really saying is, it's not enough for me what God has done. 
There's got to be something more. And so therefore, I am going to pick up what is lacking in his atonement. I will atone for my own sin. So I'm going to feel as miserable as I can in the hopes that as soon as I mount up enough self-inflicted shame, maybe God will, uh, will accept me again. <laughs> That's character assassination. Remorse is looking at the cross of Jesus and saying, that wasn't enough. I can do better. I can get in God's good grace on better grounds that don't humiliate me so badly. Can you imagine looking at God and God the Father who lost his only son and saying, mm, it just wasn't enough. I need to take some of this on. Of course, the last thing that we have to mention is this. Remorse always makes you feel worse because you never get off that treadmill. It's never enough. It never measures up to what you feel like you owe. Repentance, on the other hand, makes you feel better. It's better because we're returning into the hands of a loving father. Remorse is an endless cycle. Repentance is rest. I finally found my way where I belong. Why? I'm now in the hands of someone who has my best interest at heart. That's the difference. Now, in closing, I still can hear you struggling. Because in the back of your mind, some of you are thinking to yourself, okay, Deal with me here, Les. If forgiveness is so great, and here in Christ's presence, we talk about grace being a big deal. Grace is a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. But if I still got to live with the consequences of what I did, why would that be so special to me? If the consequences are going to be there and I don't get reprieved from those, then what would be the point of the forgiveness? Ah, well, that's where we got to go on back to Psalm 51 because David gives us the answer. In verse 10, he says in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here it is. You ready? Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you see? What David is essentially saying is, I will live with the consequences of what I did as long as I can have you. David has discovered something in the presence of God, in the spirit of God, that is so wonderful to him that he's willing to say, I will repent and I will accept whatever consequences my life has given me because I still have him. And so my invitation for you this morning, as Brian and I want to say, is that if you don't know what David is talking about there, well, then at least we have defined your journey. What, what is it? What is it that David found in the presence of God, in the Holy Spirit's witness to him, what did they discover that was as enriching as it was? Because for David, the intervention was successful because he discovered that. How will yours be? Let's pray. Because, Lord Jesus, we know we do need an intervention because we know how much we have fallen. We know how isolated we are. We know how angry we are. We know how resentful we feel. And all it is is self-atonement. We've been trying to die for our own sins. And the evil inside of us is trying to go where it is by creating the destruction of the host. 
And we don't want to do that. Maybe if you could intervene this morning, literally intervene by your spirit, that maybe as we sing, we might discover one new little drop, one little drop of what it is that you've done for us and in us on our behalf. So lead us into that as we sing, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.